All right, what we're going to talk about today. Well, if you haven't been here for the rest of the series, some of the stuff we're talking about today might just go, because I just can't go over everything again every service. And certainly today's message, we're going to be uh, really building off of last week. And last week we talked about the fact that heaven is not some spiritual dimension, some vast, infinite realm. It is a city. That's what heaven is. When you hear the word heaven, when I say heaven, I don't mean this this infinite spiritual realm somewhere, I mean a physical city. And we looked at that. There's many, many scriptures about it. But somewhere in the universe right now, there is a huge, huge mountain. And God lives at the top of that mountain. And there's a city going up that mountain. There's a wall all around it. John calls it the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21. He saw it coming out of heaven down onto earth. And that city exists right now. That is what heaven is. It's a mountain city. And we're going to build off of that today. And in the second half of this message, what I want to talk about is, is the fact that uh, uh, where heaven used to be and what that means for our future, okay? Where heaven used to be and what that means for our future. But before we get there, I've got to lay some groundwork. I want you just to bow your heads with me and close your eyes and let's pray and then we'll get into this. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord Jesus, uh, s- several things I-, I believe that you're doing through this series and I pray that you would do again here this morning. Uh, Lord, I pray first of all that you would take off the scales of unbelief that we modern Christians take with us when we open up your word. And, and we, read it, we read it metaphorically rather than, how it, than, than as actually being literally true. And Jesus, I pray that you would help us to begin to look at the scriptures in a new way and to believe them and to believe what they say. And Father, I also pray, God, that if, if there's this whole series now, this is the last shot, Father, I pray that you would help us to get a, such a compelling picture of heaven in our hearts that it would change the way we live here and now. And so I just pray, God, that you would help me to do that, that you would prepare all of our hearts here this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, little groundwork before we get to the end, which is where heaven used to be and what that means for our future. Just lay in the foundation again. Some of this, will, again, will be review for those of you who've been at Southland for any amount of time. But it's always good to just plant this stuff strongly in our hearts. Most Christians, uh, when they think about heaven, they think about it as this, again, that, that Jesus is going to come back at the, end of, at the end of the age and he's going to destroy the earth, he's going to destroy the universe and whisk us away to a spiritual place called heaven, a different place. So our future, most Christians, and again, I bet you 90% of the Christians in North America today would get this question wrong if you asked them it on the street. Uh, They would say that our future is not on earth, it's in heaven. And that is false. It's opposite of what the Bible teaches. It's black and white, day and night. The Bible clearly teaches that our future is here on earth. Our future is here on earth for eternity. Our future is not Jesus comes back, destroys the earth and the universe, and then whisks us away to a different spiritual place. Our future is God is going to move in with us. The Bible is very clear about this. We are not leaving earth. God is moving in with us. All right? Let me show you this. Revelation 21, 2 to 3. Again, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So heaven, which is a city, is coming down onto the earth, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That's the whole Bible right there. Everything in the Bible is about this. This is the climax. This is the ending. This is what God has wanted all along. Everything in the Bible, and that's happened in history up to this point, is God sovereignly working to get there. He wants to live with us. He's not whisking us away to a spiritual place. He's moving in with us. He's coming down with the heavenly city in tow, and he's going to live on the earth with us. That's his goal. That's why the crucifixion happened. Jesus died on the cross. Why? Because of sin, 
none of us would have been able to live for eternity with God. We would have had to go to another physical place called hell. And so God did not like that future, and he wanted a future with human beings so badly that he was willing to sacrifice his own son so that those who would receive his forgiveness, he could live with them forever on this earth. On this earth. On this earth. Everything in you see around you in nature, the whole reason for the creation and the universe and the stars and the planets, it's all one big, huge, elaborate, beautiful, stunning setting made for one purpose. God wants to live with human beings and he needs a place to do it. So he made earth. He loves planet earth. He loves the universe. This is the setting. He said, this is the setting I want to live in with them. He's not destroying it and then we're being whisked away to a different place. He is moving in. He is moving in. See, our modern Christian thinking is still being influenced by an ancient Greek philosopher named Plato who taught us that the physical world is inferior. He said the physical world is inferior, the material world is inferior, we have to leave and go to a more spiritual state of being. And the Bible teaches opposite, and many Christians still believe that today. God's going to destroy the earth, God's going to destroy the universe and take us away into the clouds to a spiritual place. It's false, it's not even close, it's exactly opposite. Genesis 1 verse 31, what did God say after he made the entire material physical universe? And God saw everything. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was inferior, and he decided he was going to get rid of it in the future. No. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. When God made the world, the physical universe, he didn't make something second rate, and he's like, I'm going to give them something second rate to live on now, and in the future we'll live in a spiritual place that's better. No. He made, he gave his best right here. This is where I want to live with human beings. I'm going to give them physical bodies, and this is the perfect environment for them to live for eternity. So God made the earth, he made the universe, and he said, it is all very, very good, everything. Now, you know what this means, right? It means that God loves everything about this earth, not sin and death. That's poison. But everything about this earth, he loves. That means God loves dirt. And God loves gravity. And God loves seasons. Spring and fall and winter and summer. He loves them. He made them. He loves weather. He loves it that you sweat when you work hard or when you, uh, you know, play sports. He loves it that when you do hard physical labor, something I do very little of anymore, but that you get calluses on your hands when you do hard physical labor. He loves that. And he said about all of that stuff, it is very good. And yet most Christians today in North America, you ask them what's going to happen in the end? God is going to destroy this earth because obviously it's all bad. Sleeping and eating and weather, that's horrible stuff. God's going to take us to a spiritual place where we won't have that. We won't have calluses. We won't sweat. We won't work. We won't do any of those sorts of things because God's getting rid of that. No, false. God is getting rid of sin and death. And but we are going to live in this creation forever. Because he saw all of those things. He saw sleep, he saw saw eating, he saw working, and he said, it is very good. So in the end, when Jesus comes back to earth, and again, he's moving in with us, not whisking us away. He's moving in with us. What he's going to do is not destroy the universe. He's going to heal it. He is going to heal this creation. Let me show you this in scripture. Romans 8, 19 to 23. He's going to get rid of sin and death, but he's going to keep everything that he made. He's going to get rid of sin and death. He's going to keep everything he made. Look at this. The Bible is so clear about this. 
the creation, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will be destroyed? No. No, we've gotten it so wrong in the hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. The same freedom we're going to have when Jesus comes back in the future, we're going to get resurrected bodies. We're not going to live outside of a body. We're going to have this body resurrected without sin and death and decay. Well, you won't have this body. I'll have this one, but you'll have your own body resurrected. Okay? In the same way, he says, that in the same way, creation, same way. He's not getting rid of creation. You will get a resurrected body and you will live in a liberated, resurrected earth. And God saw everything that he had made and it was very good. He loves earth, loves the sun, loves the moon, and it's all staying. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Our bodies are being redeemed and creation will be redeemed. No more sin and death, no more cancer and disease and those sorts of things and relational trauma and breakups, all this sort of stuff. That's going to be gone, but creation, we will live on the earth forever and ever. So, now, when we think about the future now, we have to think about it differently because most Christians, again, in North America, when they think of the future, they think of a radically different place. They think of clouds and sky. You need to not think about the future like that. You need to think of the future as going back to the beginning because in the beginning, there was no sin and death and God saw everything that he had made and it was very good. When you think of the future, don't think about floating around and singing for 24 hours a day. You need to think about the Garden of Eden. Back to the beginning. Again, this is a huge theme in Scripture. Acts chapter 3, 19 to 21. Peter preaches this message shortly after Pentecost. He says this, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven. Look at this. So Jesus must remain in heaven. He's up there right now in this mountain city called heaven. He must remain in heaven until what? The time comes for God to destroy everything? No. Until the time comes for God to restore everything. Jesus is waiting on heaven until the time comes to restore everything. What does it mean to restore something? If uh, some of you like to do this sort of thing, I, I don't. But you, know, you like to buy an old house and a fixer-upper, and then what do you do? You restore it. If you restore an old house, you don't burn it to the ground and get rid of the foundation and start over fresh. That's not restoring. That's building a new house. If you restore a house, you leave the foundation basically intact, you leave the main structure intact, and then you restore that old thing that's decayed, you restore it back to its pristine state. You don't get rid of it, you restore it. That's what the Bible says Jesus is doing when he comes back. He's not destroying everything, he is restoring everything. Now again, the crazy thing to me is, we have more Bibles now in Western society than any other society in the history of mankind. And most of us get this question wrong if we're asked it. And yet Peter says, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. In other words, every single person who was speaking in the Old Testament, all the prophets, they were all saying this. Jesus is going to restore it, not destroy it. And Peter learned this truth also from Jesus. Matthew 19, 28. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me 
in the regeneration. We saw it's a restoration. Now we see it's a regeneration. In the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. So when Jesus returns and sits on his glorious throne here on the earth, we're not being whisked away. He's moving in with us. God will dwell with us. He's coming down. When he sits on his glorious throne on the earth with us, Jesus calls that period of time the regeneration. The regeneration, not starting, fr- not starting w- from scratch, getting rid of everything and doing a new thing, a regeneration. Now the Greek word there translated regeneration, and for those of you who are visiting here today, I always reserve the right to butcher the Greek badly, okay? But, so just forgive my pronunciation, but the Greek word there behind regeneration is palagonesia, okay? And I'm going to read you straight from the concordance now. I just copied it right into my notes. The word palagonesia means, this is what it means, renovation. The word often used to denote the restoration of a thing to its pristine state. It's renovation as in a renewal or restoral of a thing to life after death. So in other words, again, what do we see Jesus is going to do when he comes back? He's going to restore it. He's going to regenerate it. He's going to renovate it. We will live on this earth forever and ever and ever with God, but he's going to heal it back to the way it originally was, its pristine state. Okay? So again... When you think, this just has to radically change the way, when you're asking yourself questions, and many people are asking me questions about heaven now, and remember, really what you're asking is about eternity, because heaven will be on the earth. So it almost has to change your terminology a little bit, but people are asking me questions, and some of the questions you can figure out for yourselves. You just need to start thinking differently. Stop thinking of heaven as out there. When you think of eternity, you think of being here on the earth. Think of the beginning. Think of Genesis 1 to 2. Think of the the Garden of Eden. That's what you need to think about. Think about the Garden of Eden when you have questions. Now, when I say, you know, we're going back to the beginning, I don't mean we're going to lose all of our knowledge and we're going to live, you know, we're going to wear animal skins or anything like that. No, okay? It's not that we're going back in time, but the physics of of life on earth will be the same. The environment will be the same as it was in the Garden of Eden, okay? So let me help you reimagine that a bit. Just to just show you how, you how you think about this. Again, okay, was there gra- here's an obvious one we've talked about before, and then we'll look at some less obvious ones. Was there gravity in the Garden of Eden? Was there gravity in the Garden of Eden? You bet. Okay? So guess what? When Jesus comes back, you won't be floating places. There will still be gravity. Guess what? God th- thought that was the best way to do it. If he wanted you to float around, he would have made you a balloon. Okay? I actually get some people that are disappointed. I wanted to float around all my life. You need to get that checked out somewhere, okay? Because God made you for earth. He said it's very good that human beings walk on the ground and be held down by a force called gravity. It will still be here when Jesus is on earth. We will live in this world for eternity. Do you think Adam ever stubbed his toe or tripped on a root or bumped his knee? (gasps) No, that won't happen in heaven. You don't think he did that in the Garden of Eden? Was that sin and death and the curse? You know, Adam's walking around one day, he stubs his toe on the root. Oh, sin! How you've doomed me. No. That's human beings living in a world with solid objects. In heaven, you're not just going to run up to a wall and bam, and oh, I love it now in heaven, nothing hurts. Weird. You're not going to an alien planet. Think back to the beginning. Think back to the beginning. What would it have been like for them? That is the environment we will live in again. Yes. God saw everything that he had made, all the laws of physics and how things work and said it is very good. God gave us pain sensors in the Garden of Eden. He made our bodies with pain sensors. That has nothing to do with sin. 
It's so that you don't keep your hand on a hot plate. Your hand isn't supposed to stay there. So you go, ow, and you take it off. So you will feel hot and cold in heaven. Now, there's not going to be sin or death or decay. There won't be crying in the sense of agony and torture and broken relationships and all these sorts of things. But you, you know, stubbing your toe, that sort of thing, yes, that's still there. Do you think Adam and Eve had to work and eat while they lived in the Garden of Eden? You bet. Still too many Christians talking about how we won't have to eat in heaven, we won't have to sleep in heaven, all sorts of stuff. It's weird. They're still thinking of going to another alien planet. All of those were good things. Read Genesis 2, 15 to 23. Read it this week. Genesis chapter 2, 15 to 23. And you know what you'll find? Adam and Eve had to work hard. They had to plant stuff. They had to harvest stuff. They had to eat to get energy. They had to do all of those sorts of things. And guess what? God is restoring us, renovating us, regenerating us back to the beginning. We will work hard. We will plant. We will sow harvest, all sorts of things. And we will eat to get energy. Yes, we will. It's not an alien world. It's going back to the beginning. Life with Jesus here on earth is going to be amazing. It's not that we won't eat food when he returns. The food will be better. It's not that we won't have work when Jesus returns. The work will be more satisfying. Life with Jesus here on earth in eternity will not be less physical than life right now. It will be more physical, more rewarding, more beautiful, and more pleasurable. That sense of satisfaction you get from a job well done here in this age right now is just a tiny taste of the satisfaction you will get from a job well done after Jesus returns to earth. It's just a tiny taste. The Psalms say that there are pleasures at his right hand forevermore. The pleasures you feel here on earth are just a tiny shadow of the pleasures you will experience then when you worship, when you work, all of these sorts of things. See, and this again is why so many people have these warped views of heaven that we're just going to sing, 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 sing without ceasing for trillions of years without end. False. We're going back to the beginning. It all really comes down to this Greek thinking that tells us spiritual things are spiritual and physical things are not spiritual. So we think the only way to worship God is to sing. False. We worship God with our work. We worship God with our play. We worship God with the way we eat. We worship God with all of that stuff. He created all of life to be done as worship. And the fact that we think worship is only singing is why we think we will only sing in heaven. It's true you will worship God all the time in heaven, but there is more to worship than singing. And so you will work hard in heaven, you will eat, you will have relationships, you will love, you will play, you will do all of those things as worship to God after Jesus comes to earth. Very, very important. Now, a little rabbit trail here. Three weeks ago in the first message of this series, I, I, I mentioned that I think there will be repairmen in heaven. And some of you were speed dialing 911, Cardiac arrest, what did Chris just say? This is wild stuff, okay? So let's just do a little thought experiment. You ready for a little thought experiment now? Heaven is not God whisking us away to alien world. It's him restoring the earth back to the beginning. So let's do a little thought experiment, okay? I know you guys are up for this. Um, Let's imagine Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, okay? And let's imagine that Adam and Eve, you know, uh, managed to have kids without sinning, okay? Like, now they didn't. They didn't make it that far, um, but let's imagine that they had. Let's imagine they raised kids and they didn't sin. And they were still in the Garden of Eden and the curse of sin and death hadn't come on the world. Okay? Now let's imagine uh, that Adam built a table because they will have built stuff for sure. That's not part of the curse. Oh, you sin. Now you have to build stuff. Okay? No. So Adam builds a table 
And, and, you know, the boys get out of hand one day because they're wrestling. That's what boys do. They grow up. They're teenagers. So you got Seth and Abel and Cain. And Cain didn't kill Abel, let's say. And, and, and they start wrestling. And so things just progress, as it always does with boys when they're wrestling. And then finally, someone ends up getting slammed onto the table. And the table breaks. Now, does Adam come to this, fall on his knees, weeping and say, No! Sin and death! Does that table breaking have anything to do with sin or death of the curse? No. It's the laws of physics plus boys being boys. That's it. Adam doesn't freak out. He doesn't think Satan just got a stronghold in the family. He takes out his hammer and nails and he fixes it. But we think heaven is this weird alien place where no one will drop a cup. No one will rip their pants. By the way, you don't think we're going to laugh in heaven? You don't think we're going to have humor in heaven? Because someone rips their pants, that's funny. I think so. Someone falls in the water, that's funny. Okay? Sin and death are going to be gone. Sin and death are going to be gone, but people just being people isn't going to be gone. We're going to have huge feasts. You don't think someone's going to spill a little bit of of, of wine, I mean juice, on their shirt? And go, oh, i got a smudge on my shirt. No, that will never happen in heaven. We'll be also prim and proper wearing, you know, padded suits and everything will be bouncy so that nothing can break or stain or nothing. No. We're going back to the Garden of Eden. It's a real place. So certainly in heaven, I mean, some of you guys here, I know the way God has made you, you are in your best place when you're in the workshop and you're fixing something or building something. That is from God. That's from God. And you will do that in, when he comes in heaven, well, here on earth, when heaven comes down to earth. Okay, we're going to feast there. We're going to have fun there. I'm sure there will be practical jokes there. There will be more to life than singing. We will sing, yes. We will worship the Lord in, in you know, huge assemblies, but we will also have fun to the Lord. Isaiah 25, on this mountain, remember, God lives on a mountain. It's a huge mountain city. On this mountain, after it comes back down to earth, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, look at this, a feast of rich food. A feast of rich food. Okay? You are not just going to eat fruits and vegetables in heaven. Okay? Um, you know, and now, I know that God will probably redeem our taste buds a bit so that we'll probably like fruits and vegetables more and they'll taste better when he comes back to earth. But having said that, you're going to have feasts of rich food that we're going to eat. And think about this. On this mountain, for all people, there's going to be millions of people there. Again, you don't think a chair is going to get tipped over or someone's going to drop something? Yes. A feast of rich food. A feast of, of well-aged, there it is, wine, I guess. It's got non-alcoholic, I'm sure. God will make sure to take it out. Because <laughs> that would be a horrible sin. I'm just joking. Or maybe I'm not, depending on which way you're offended. <laughs> Feast of well-aged wine. Of rich food, full of marrow. Of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. The veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. All right? 
So that is our future. Our future is here on earth. It's an earthly place. It's wonderful because there's no sin and death. And the heavenly city will be on the earth. It'll be the capital city of the world. But the rest of the world will still exist. And we'll still have nations and cities outside of the capital city. And it'll be, the whole earth will be filled with people who have loved God in this lifetime. And, and we'll make pilgrimages up to the heavenly Jerusalem. And, and we'll have feasts there and festivals and worship times. It'll be amazing. But it's here on the earth. Here on the earth, God will live with us. All right, one last thing now we need to talk about in this series. So we're going back to the beginning. We already saw as well that God's desire is to dwell with us. If you would put that verse back up there again, Dave. Revelation 21, 2 to 3, And I saw the holy city coming down, and I heard the loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. God really wants to live with people. He really wants to live. He, he loves you. He loves you. He wants to live with you. It's not enough. Did it, did it ever occur to you that God is more bothered by the separation that we experience with him right now than we are? I mean, God wants to live with us. It's, a, it's stunning. No other religion tells you this about God. Islam would tell you that this is, this is some kind of blasphemy. God doesn't need to live with people. He's too glorious. He's too holy. He, he punishes us for our sin. But the Bible tells us that God loves you so much that he wants to move in. He doesn't just want to hear your prayers from a distance. He doesn't just want to be invisible to you. He wants to live with you and me. So then the question is, well, why isn't he then right now? If that's what he wants, if that's how it started and that's what he wants, why doesn't he come here and live here right now? And the answer is because of sin. Sin and his mercy. In order for God to come and live with us, he has to get rid of sin, which means he has to get rid of all the sinners too. And because of his mercy and patience and long-suffering, he wants to, he's going to come back at the perfect time when the maximum amount of people can be saved and the minimum amount of people will have to go to hell. In his mercy and long-suffering, that's the only reason he's waiting right now. I mean, if it was just up to him and nobody else would go to hell, he would come right now because that is what he wants. But because of sin and because of his mercy, he's waiting to save the maximum amount, to have the maximum amount of people be on earth here for all of eternity with him. Okay? Well, then that just begs the question, though, and then this is where I want to finish this message about heaven. If the only reason, I mean, if God in the future is going to come live with us because that's what he really, really wants, and if the only reason he isn't with us right now is because, is because of sin, then the question we have to ask ourselves is, well, did God live on the earth before there was sin? I mean, if he, if he is going to live with us in the future, and that's the whole thing, and the only reason he isn't right now is because of sin, then, I mean, he made the earth very good. He loved the way he made everything in the beginning. Is it possible that God did live on the earth with human beings physically before sin was introduced? Another way we could put this question is, where was heaven when God made the earth? That city. We know that heaven is a city. Where was that city when God made the earth before there was sin? I mean, because it doesn't make a lot of sense. If God wants to live here, and the only reason he isn't is because of sin, well, then why did he build that city up in space somewhere? And the answer is that he didn't. And that's where I want to finish this message today, is that heaven did used to be on the earth. 
and it's going to come down again. And this will change. Again, when you get this picture, first of all, it's going to change the way you read the scriptures. You're going to start to see things come alive in here that you never saw before. It's also going to banish from your mind once and for all this, these weird ideas you have about heaven. Because we can already see uh, some of what heaven was like. We can see it in the first chapters of, of Genesis. Heaven was on the earth. The heavenly city was on the earth. Now let me show you a few proofs. I don't have tons of time to get through all of them. This took me about three hours with School of Ministers and I don't have that much time here with you guys this morning. So again, we have it all in the paper there and stuff. I would encourage you to take one on your way out. But uh, let me just skim through this quickly. Our first clue that this is indeed the case, Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20. Paul says this. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him, that's Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth. So Jesus, we often think of heaven as an uncreated spiritual place. It's not true. It's a physical created place just like earth. Because all things in heaven and on earth, earth and heaven, uh, are both created places that Jesus created. Okay? Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now we skip ahead a couple verses. And this is where it gets very interesting. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. So it was the Father's pleasure to have all the fullness of God dwell in the Son, Jesus Christ. And through him, that's Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself. So um, now we all know this with respect to people. Uh, The Father and us as human beings, we were separated by sin. So Jesus' death on the cross, anyone who accepts that and, and, and chooses to accept Jesus' forgiveness is now reconciled to the Father. But here Paul says it's not just people who are being reconciled. Okay? He says here that he's reconciling all things. The Father is re- reconciling not just people, but the earth itself. Creation itself, the animals, the plants, the oceans. The Father is reconciling all things to himself through Jesus. Okay? Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or in heaven. Now, this is really interesting. We've seen that when Jesus comes back, he's going to restore things. He's going to regenerate things. He's going to renovate things. And now we see he's going to reconcile things. Now, what does it mean to reconcile? Okay? If I meet a brand new person in the lobby today, and we make fast friends, have I reconciled with that person? No. (laughs) No problem. (laughs) If If I meet a new person, and we start a brand new relationship... That is not a reconciliation. That's a new relationship. In order for me to reconcile with someone, I first have to have a relationship with them. Then the relationship has to be broken. And then if that relationship gets restored after it's been broken, that is a reconciliation. In order to reconcile with something, you must first be together with that thing. You must be broken off. And then you must be together again. That's what reconciling means. Yes? Okay? Now here in this passage... Paul talks about the end, that through Jesus, the Father is reconciling all things in heaven and earth to himself. So in the end, when the heavenly city comes down and rests on the earth, and God and human beings and the heavenly city and earth are all together in one place, Paul calls that a reconciliation. But if God and the heavenly city and earth and people being together is a reconciliation, that means that at some point in the past, they had to have been together before. Otherwise, this passage has no meaning. The word reconcile has no meaning. He's reconciling all things to him through Jesus, things in heaven and on earth. In order for it to be a reconciliation, all of those things had to have been together before. 
We're headed for a restoration, a regeneration, and a reconciliation. Now, some of you are sitting there and you're saying, you're going to have to show me more scripture than that. Good. I'm glad you're making it difficult. You want to see more Bible? Excellent. Let's look at Ezekiel 28, 13 and 14. Isn't this fun, by the way? You just start to read the scripture and you go, whoa, there's a lot of stuff here. Ezekiel 28, 13 to 14. You. Okay, now I just have to stop for a moment. Uh, theologians uh, argue about this passage. Is he talking to Adam or is he talking to Satan? Doesn't matter, okay? We'll just leave it. Doesn't matter for our message here. It just matters that one of them, okay? So you, Adam or Satan, were in Eden. So the Garden of Eden, right? Which obviously was on the earth in the beginning. So you, Adam or Satan, was in the Garden of Eden, the Garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardia, Sardius, Topaz. There's a whole bunch of, of stones there. I just took them out because I wanted this to fit on one screen. So I just took out the rest of the stones. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. Now, if you were here in last week's message when we talked about the fact that God lives on a mountain and, and that the holy mountain of God is where God lives and that's actually heaven and it's a city, a uh, little alarm bell should be going off in your head right now. Little red lights flashing because... Wait a minute. First of all, nobody ever told me there was a mountain in the Garden of Eden. And, but it's not even just any mountain. In this passage, it, God says to Adam or Satan, whichever one it is, you were in Eden and you were on the holy mountain of God. The, the holy mountain of God was in Eden. And the holy mountain of God is just another name in Scripture for the heavenly city Jerusalem. We saw that last week. The holy mountain of God is where God lives. This gigantic mountain city, right now it's, it's up there somewhere. At the end of time, it's going to come back down. That's the holy mountain of God. It was in Eden. Now, you might need that to sink in a little bit. So let me just show you a few passages. Last week, we looked at a whole bunch which proved that the holy mountain of God is heaven. It's the heavenly city. Okay? There's a bunch more in the paper. Let me just show you four quick ones right here again. Just to give you time to settle in, I'm going to show you some more proofs yet, too. Psalm 3, verse 4, David is praying to God. He says this, I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from where? His holy mountain. When you and I pray, we know that our prayers go up to heaven. Here David gives us more information. Heaven is a mountain. He hears me from his holy mountain. What's crazy is, Ezekiel 38 says that this holy mountain, when David prays and his prayers go up to the holy mountain, which is up there somewhere right now because it's not on the earth anymore, but that holy mountain in the beginning was in Eden. Hebrews 12, 22 to 23. We looked at this verse a number of times last week. We see again that the mountain of God is a city. It's not just a mountain. But you have come to Mount Zion. The moment you get saved, your, your name gets written into heaven. And if you endure to the end, it stays there. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. Mount Zion is a city. The heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Okay? Mount Zion. It's called different things in scripture. The holy mountain of God. The mountain of the Lord. Different things. Here it is. Here we see that it is heaven. It's otherwise known as the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. And in Ezekiel 28, we see that this mountain was in Eden. Psalm 48, verses 1 to 2, an end-time prophecy of the end when God comes down to earth with the new Jerusalem in tow. Listen to what it's going to look like in the end. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. God lives in a huge city. But it's also on a mountain. Look at the next sentence. His holy mountain. 
Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion. So Mount Zion is the holy mountain. There you see it. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. So David sees, uh, 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 gets a prophecy of the end, and he sees this huge mountain city on the earth, and it's the joy of all the earth. This is God on the earth. And in Ezekiel 38, we see that this holy mountain was in Eden in the beginning. Stunning. Isaiah 65, 25, again, a famous prophecy about the new heavens and new earth. It says this, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. This is what will happen after God comes on earth and there's no more death on the earth. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Again, in the end, God's mountain is going to come down onto the earth and there won't be death on the earth anymore and God's living on his holy mountain here on the earth. And in Ezekiel 38, this holy mountain was in Eden. In the beginning. Again, Ezekiel 28, shocking passage. Well, let me show you some more things, though, okay? So that's Ezekiel 28. The Holy Mountain was in Eden. Let's talk about the tree of life. Let's talk about the tree of life. Where was the tree of life in the beginning? Well, it was in the Garden of Eden here on earth, right? Let me show you a passage. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like... Oh, I'm reading ahead. <laughs> Genesis 2, verse 8 to 9. You got the right one up there. Good. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. By the way, the Garden of Eden is not all that there is to Eden. Eden is a huge piece of land, and the Garden of Eden was planted in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So the tree of life was clearly here on earth, in the Garden of Eden, in the beginning, okay? Now, have you ever stopped to think, what happened to the tree of life? Did that thought ever cross your mind? What happened to the tree of life after Adam and Eve sinned? It was on the earth, where is it today? Okay, what happened to it? Well, we know it didn't die. I mean, it's the tree of life, okay? <laughs> if it dies, that doesn't bode well for us in the future, okay? The tree of life didn't die. We know God didn't get rid of it. He didn't just chop it down and, and get rid of it. We know that because... He sent an angel to guard it so that Adam and Eve couldn't eat from it anymore. So he, he clearly didn't die or go away because he had to guard it after they left. Look at this. I'll show you in Genesis 3.22, after they sinned. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So after they sinned, God said, I have to keep them away from the tree of life. Because if they eat from it, they'll keep living forever in their sinful state. And that would be awful. Death was actually God's mercy to us. That we would not live forever in, these, in the, this sin-sickened way we live. So he said, I have to drive them away from the tree of life. I'm not getting rid of the tree of life. I'm going to have to drive them away from it and guard it, okay? So, therefore the Lord God drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, now, this passage makes absolutely no sense according to our common understanding of Eden. And it's shocking to me that even like myself as well, all my life, I never thought about this passage. It doesn't make sense. Unless you, unless you get a radical reorientation of what you think about what Eden was and where it was. How does God sending one angel with a flaming sword to the east of the garden stop Adam and Eve from coming back to eat from the tree of life? See, most of us, think, when we think of the Garden of Eden, we think of this big open park. It's just this huge open park, lots of fruit trees. And, I mean, there's the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and there's, there's the, the good tree, the tree of life in there. And it's just this big open park, okay, on the earth. 
If that's true, if the Garden of Eden is just a big open park, how does one, whoa, you're giving me away, Dave. Yeah, I'll put it up there now. How does one angel in the east stop Adam and Eve from coming in on the north or the west or the south? It doesn't. There had to have been a wall around the Garden of Eden with a gate in the east. Perhaps it looks something like this. The heavenly city, the mountain of God. We already know from Ezekiel, the mountain of God was on the earth. We know the mountain of God is the city of God, the new Jerusalem. We know it has a wall around it from Revelation 21, tells us it's, you know, 200 and some feet high. It's a very big wall all the way around. So maybe, and we know the Garden of Eden had to have had a wall around it with a gate in the east. Otherwise, one angel doesn't keep them from coming back in. So it's got a wall around it. Did it look something like this? You say, no, 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 no. It doesn't look like that. And I've got scripture to prove it. No, you don't. You just don't think it does because this is just weird compared to the weird way you've always been taught about this. So let me prove to you that this is actually accurate. I'm going to show you from the Bible that this diagram is accurate. Where is the... Where is the tree of life right now? Where is it right now? Well, Revelation 22, John gets a vision. It's the New Jerusalem. We know Revelation 21 and Revelation 22. John gets a vision of the heavenly city, the New Jerusalem. What does he say, see inside of it? Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. This is the New Jerusalem. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life. John sees a vision of the new Jerusalem, which is going to come down into heaven someday and be on the earth again. And what does he see in there? He sees in there the tree of life. Not a tree of life, the tree of life. Which is just like the diagram I showed you in the previous slide. I said the tree of life in the Garden of Eden had to have been in some kind of a wall. It must have been, and the mountain of God was there, so it had to have been within the heavenly city, and we see it confirmed right here. It is in the heavenly city right now. John saw it. The new Jerusalem, the tree of life, is there. Now, of course, the objection is, well, that can't be true, Chris, because it's just weird to think that the heavenly city is this huge mountain and that it, it, it went up from the earth. We know from Revelation 21 that God is going to bring it down in the end. If it can come down, it could have gone up. One plus one equals two. If it can come down, that's in the Bible, it could have gone up. Yes, God could have done that. In fact, let me prove it to you. It's not just the tree of life that is in the heavenly city right now. The entire Garden of Eden exists right now. It did not disappear. It is in the heavenly city right now. Revelation 2 verse 7. Jesus makes this promise. He says, He who has an ear to hear, or he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. There it is again. This is the promise, by the way, to the one who conquers. And notice that the, the word conquers. This promise is not made to people who just prayed a prayer that started well. It's to those who finish well. Finishing matters more than starting. You have to start to finish. That's good. Starting is good. But finishing is what matters. To him who conquers, I will grant to eat from the tree of life. Guess what? Here's the promise to you. If you finish well and you follow Jesus to the last breath of your life, you will get to eat from the same tree of life that Adam and Eve did in Genesis chapter 2. You will eat from the same tree of life that Adam and Eve did in Genesis 2. Jesus promises that. I will grant to eat of the tree of life. Now Jesus gives us some more information, which is in the paradise of God. Now, it's right here where us modern English speakers totally miss something that everybody, Greek-speaking and, and Hebrew-speaking, Jewish and Greek alike, 
understood in New Testament times when they read this. They all understood paradise. We don't understand paradise. Over the centuries, we have come to define paradise as heaven. So when we read, Jesus says, you eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, we hear paradise, we say heaven. Now, technically, obviously, it is in heaven. It's in the heavenly city. But that isn't what Jesus is saying. The word paradise does not mean heaven. It doesn't mean it. You always think it. I've always thought that. It's not what it means. And everything I'm about to tell you about paradise, you can look up in any commentary. I challenge you to look it up this week. Look it up in every commentary. Even the ones that are wrong, like 90% of the time, they all get this one right. It's easy. The word paradise does not mean heaven. The Greek word paradisos was borrowed from the Persians in ancient times. And it means one thing. It does not mean heaven. It means a walled garden. Sound familiar? It means a walled garden. See, in ancient times, the Persian kings were known for having the most spectacular gardens in the world. And when I say garden, I don't mean a little vegetable plot. It's more like a park. At their palaces, they would have these huge parks. Many servants would groom these things. Many, many different kinds of trees and fruit trees and flowers and plants and pathways. They would be a park and they would always have a wall around it because only the king and the people who were close to the king could go into that garden. And so a walled garden at a king's palace was called paradise. So when the king wanted to go out to his walled garden, he would say to his wife, uh, or wives, I guess, in those days, but goodbye, uh, I'm going to paradise. And they wouldn't freak out, oh, he's going to kill himself. No. <laughs> That's what we think now, because we think of paradise as this place in the sky. That's not what paradise means. The word means one thing, walled garden. Okay? So when Jesus said, you will eat from the tree of life, which is in paradise, he was not saying you eat from the tree of life, which is in heaven, even though technically we know it is in heaven, it's in the heavenly city. What he was saying was you will eat of the tree of life, which is in the garden of God. God has a walled garden at his palace. I showed you a diagram just shortly before. Let me show it to you again, okay? Jesus said, you will eat from tree of life, which is in the walled garden of God. Now, you say, well, he doesn't say the garden of Eden. Yes, he does. This is another thing we miss. See, the Jews, when they talked about the garden of Eden, you can read this in all their ancient writings, and again, you can look this up as well, and I have it all in the paper. When they talked about the Garden of Eden, they actually had another name that they usually use for it and, and it traces back to Genesis chapter 2. They called the Garden of Eden the Garden of God. That's what they called it. In fact, the phrase Garden of God, which Jesus uses in Revelation 2 verse 7, it appears four, times in, four other times in Scripture. Four other times in Scripture, we see the phrase Garden of God. In every single one of those cases, it is directly tied to the Garden of Eden because that's what it is. Let me show this to you. The garden of God is the garden of Eden. So in Revelation 2 verse 7, when Jesus says, you eat from the tree of life which is in the garden of God, he was saying, you will eat from the tree of life which is in the garden of Eden, which means the garden of Eden still exists. It's still there. But the heavenly city has been taken up. Let me prove this to you. Ezekiel 28 verse 13. You were in Eden the what? The garden of God. There is only one garden of God in the whole universe. And if you read Genesis 2, you'll see why it's called the garden of God. It's because Adam and Eve didn't plant the garden of Eden. God did. He designed it. It's the most beautiful, spectacular, amazing park the world, the universe has ever seen. And we will all get to see it again someday and eat from the tree of life there. But it's his garden because he planted it. No human being did it. Isaiah 51 verse 3, For the Lord comforts Zion, 
He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of God. Ezekiel 31, verses 8 to 9, the cedars in the garden of God could not rival it, nor the fir trees equal its boughs, neither were the plane trees like its branches. No tree in the garden of God was its equal in beauty. I made it beautiful in the mass of its branches, and the trees of Eden envied it that were in the garden of God. The garden of God is the garden of Eden. And all of the readers, see, the, 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 the Jewish readers and early Christian readers who were reading Revelation 2.7, if you could go back there, Dave, thanks again. They all knew this. See, we've lost the meaning of the word paradise through all of our Greek thinking about heaven over the centuries. Paradise doesn't mean heaven, it means walled garden. And Jesus said, you will eat from the tree of life which is in the walled garden of God, which they all knew meant the Garden of Eden because that is God's garden. The moment you begin to realize this, a whole bunch of things in Scripture start to make more sense. The word paradise pops up only two other times in, uh, in the New Testament. Just two other times. It's here in Revelation 2, 7. It's in two other places. Luke 23, Jesus on the cross with the thief. And the thief gives his life to Jesus, right? And what does Jesus say to him? Today, you will be with me in paradise. What's he saying? We hear, today you'll be with me in heaven. That's not what he said. Today, you will be with me in the walled garden. Which walled garden? Jesus didn't even have to say. When you say the walled garden, there is only one. It is Eden. It's kind of like when we moved, when we first moved to Manitoba from southern Ontario. I mean, southern Ontario isn't mountainous, but it's hilly, okay? We moved to Manitoba. I was in high school. And one of the things that gave me the greatest kick the first couple years I was in high school here was uh, guys would say, you know, let's go play some football or frisbee or whatever. Let's go do it at the hill. And everybody knew when someone would say the hill in Steinbeck, we all knew what they were talking about. It's Abe's Hill because there is only one hill. The hill. So you don't have to say Abe's Hill. You don't have to specify which hill. The hill is Abe's Hill. Same with the garden of God. If you want to say, the, you know, someone else's garden, you would specify that. Jesus says to the thief, you're going to be with me in the walled garden. Which garden is that? All the Jews knew. They consider, and again, you can look this up in my paper. The word paradise came to mean for the Jews only the garden of Eden. In fact, in the rest of the New Testament, anytime they talk about a garden that isn't Eden, it's a different word. It's not even paradise because paradise came to be just that. It came, re- whenever in the rest of the uh, New Testament they talk about a garden that isn't the Garden of Eden, they use the word kipos. Okay? Very important. Also uh, in 2 Corinthians verse 12, Paul says he was caught up into the third heaven. It says he was caught up into the third heaven and into paradise. Now when we read that, we think Paul was caught up into the third heaven and into heaven. Paul wasn't repeating himself, he said, I was caught up into the third heaven and into the walled garden. Which one is he talking about? Eden, which is in the heavenly city. All right, it's a powerful thing. We're going to have a reconciliation with God in the end. He's bringing that city back down to the earth. We're going to have a reconciliation because all of these things were together before. By the way, Genesis makes a lot more sense too. The first six chapters of Genesis make a lot more sense when you realize that up until the flood, the heavenly city was on the earth. Makes a lot more sense. I already, I already showed you how the angel guarding it from the east makes more sense. You'd have, the Garden of Eden had to have a wall around it and an entrance on the east. Well, how about Cain and Abel? Cain kills Abel. God comes down and says to him, uh, Cain, uh, I'm going to send you away from the land of Eden. Not the Garden of Eden. He was already gone from me. I'm going to send you away from Eden to the land of Nod. Now, I always thought when I read that in, in years past, I thought, boy, Cain got off easy. All he has to do is go to a different place. And Cain seems so broken up about it. 
And you can read this story for yourself this week in chapter 4. And God says to Cain, I'm going to send you away from Eden to the land of Nod. And what does Cain say? Cain says, don't do that. If you do that, you're sending me away from your presence. Then he repeats it. He says it again in the next verse. He says, if you do that, you're sending me away from your face. Now, if God is living up in heaven at that point, and speaking down in a spiritual voice to Cain, how does Cain moving from one place on the earth to another mean that he's leaving God's presence? It doesn't make any sense. That passage only makes sense when you realize God was still living on the earth and he was literally sending Cain away from his presence where he would not be able to see the city anymore. And then what's the first thing Cain does? What's the first thing he does? You can read it again, Genesis chapter 4. The first thing Cain does after he leaves to the land of Nod is he builds a city. You ever thought about that before? That makes no sense, okay? It makes no sense. If there's like, what, 10 or 20 people on the earth at this point? You've got Adam and Eve, you've got their kids, so Cain and Abel, and there's a few sisters, we won't get into all of that. But you've got Cain, and, and, and you've got Abel's gone, but you've got Cain and Seth, and you've got just a few people. And, so, and if the Garden of Eden is just this open park, then how does Cain have any idea what a city is? And yet the first thing he does is he leaves the land of Eden, and he builds a city. The reason is because he had seen a city. He had seen a city already. And lastly, and then I'll pray, uh, Enoch says in Genesis that Enoch walked with God. And of course, when we hear Enoch walked with God, we think Enoch started reading his Bible and praying. The word walked with God, it's the same exact Hebrew word. It's the exact same word as when God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. And we all know that God physically walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. And it says that exact same word. It says God walked with, e- with Enoch. When Enoch was 65 years old, he started. That's what the verse says. He started to walk with God. He walked with God for 300 years, and then it says that he was no more. People think, well, you know, after 300 years, God just zapped him up to earth or up to, up to heaven. No, the heavenly city was still on the earth. For 300 years, God walked with Enoch. Can you just think about that? Physically, God wants to walk with you and me. He wants to spend time with us. So for 300 years, he walked with Enoch, and one day they went for one of their walks, and, and, and they came up to the city, and God waved the flaming cherubim aside, and him and Enoch walked into the heavenly city. And so we're going to have a reconciliation. That's the God who we serve. God loves us. He wants to physically live with us. He wants to walk with us and have relationships with us. And in the end, there's going to be this reconciliation, and we're going to do it again. As we finish off this message now, I just ask you again, as I've been asking you throughout this series, are you ready for that reconciliation? Are you ready for that reconciliation? Bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, We look forward to the time, the fact that you want to walk with us, that you walked with Adam and Eve, that you walked with Enoch, that you actually love human beings that much. You don't just want to be distant. You don't want us just to pray to you from a distance, Father. You are going to move back onto the earth and physically live with us. We look forward to that day. I pray that you would help us to live in such a way, Lord, that we are ready for your return. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.